Welcome to the Writer's Block Party Podcast with your hosts Meredith Bond and Prue Warren, where they discuss every aspect of a writer's life, from the craft of writing and editing, through publishing and marketing, and finally into building a global publishing empire. Here is Mary and Prue. Welcome to the Writer's Block Party podcast. I am Meredith Bond, one of your co-hosts, and I am here with the beautiful Prue Warren. Although you can't, <laughs> no, thank God. Thank God we're on Zoom because there's no beautiful here today. But thank you very much. And I represent uh, the unlettered, the unpublished, or the little published in the world. And, and today we have a big step up from that. Mary, you do the introduction. Okay. Yes, we are we are we have three steps of publishing here. We have Prue who has just gotten started oh, and Prue. has now two books under her belt. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and then we have me. I've been published for uh 15 years and I have about a little over 30 books under my belt. And here today special guest is Mary Jo Putney. Mary Jo, how long have you been published? I started writing on March 22nd, 1986. I got a three-book contract in July 9th. My first book came out in 1987, and I've been continuously published ever since, with a very short period of a couple of months the last time I changed publishers. Well, and how many books do you have out? It's somewhere around 50. It's it's harder to make a count than you would think. Plus, there's several books worth of novellas and some short stories. I think you should. You can count that. What did you okay. say, Prue? Uh, just in the fiftieth range, the, the range of fifties. Like you're already, you're already into the big deep. In my opinion, it's on the other hand, Mary has been published for less than half the time I have, and has done 50, thirty books. So I think she's doing pretty well and faster than I am. Well, but I'm, I'm counting my novellas. Uh, they're published works. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. Okay, that may put me up around 75. Mary Jo, how is it you know it was March 26, 1986? I mean, did one day you say, now I will write? No. On March 25th. Actually, it's a different day. It's it's December 31st, 1985. And I I was a freelance graphic designer. And I wanted to buy a computer for doing billing and stuff and copy editing and so forth. So on that day, to get the tax benefit of 1985, I bought a computer, a leading edge, and a printer. And after I'd been messing around with it for a while, and my significant other, now husband, taught me how to use the word processing program, I thought, gee, I've always wanted to write a book. Let's see if I can write a book. I'd always... <laughs> wow. Well, I had read everything from the time I could. I learned to read. And when I read Georgette Hare over and over and over, and then I discovered there were modern regencies in the library, a lot of them from I.O. Walker. And that was in my head. I'd also lived in England for two years in Oxford, where I was the art editor of a left-wing magazine. And I did absorb a lot of British culture. And I have a degree in 18th century British literature, as well as a degree in industrial design, which is where the design business part came from. But anyhow, I'd always had these stories in my head, so I decided to sit down one day, first day of spring, I think it was I think it was the 22nd, I know it was a Saturday, and decided to write a book. And I wanted to do a sort of a inverted version of a traditional regency, and I sold it on a partial manuscript and never looked back. 
Wow. Wow. I will give a big caveat here. It was the time that the, re- the romance business was expanding and they were looking for new voices. It was probably easier to sell a book then than most times before or since. But I happened to luck into a great agent who later rather um, you know, rudely retired after 19 years as my agent. And she knew who to send it to. Actually, what happened is she, I got a call from her saying, this is Ruth Cohen in California. How long is it going to be? When will it be done? And can you write more like this? <laughs> wow. And so she sent back my 119 pages, I think it was, and marked it up in some place, like tighten it up here. What's the heroin feeling? Blah, blah, blah. So I made the changes. She said I didn't have to, but they were obviously smart changes. So I sent her the updated version. And she sent it off to Hillary Ross at Signet and Hillary's fast. And she called, she actually, Ruth called and said, Hillary Ross at Signet would like to talk to you tomorrow morning. Will you be available? Oh, let me just check my calendar, see if I can fit this in. <laughs> so we chatted for a bit. And I later found out that she, she wasn't quite sure if a book would work or if the, if the author knew what she was doing. Um, because and it was a partial manuscript. She liked to talk with them a little bit and see if they sound like a real author. I guess I did because she ended the phone call by saying, well, I guess I'll call, talk to Ruth and see if I can buy the book. I still have not recovered from the shock of that. This, that's, <laughs> that, that's a book publishing legend that I think, I mean, I think every new writer is waiting for that phone call, right? <laughs> These days it's maybe an email, but <laughs> actually I will tell you a better version of that. Mary Ballog, who started writing Regencies a couple of years before I did and is a legend in the business. Yeah. When she, she got, she, after she sent her book in after three months and it was finished and she got sold, published. My God. I only had about a third of it. This is probably, this is probably like dangling heroin in front of a junkie. I mean, <laughs> this doesn't, this is like a, a Greek myth, like Sisyphus trying to get a ball up a hill. This doesn't happen anymore. It's a different world in so many, many ways. And as I said, at the time, Mary and then I sold in the mid 80s, they were looking for new new voices, new people who could write. And we both, yeah, Mary was born, Mary Bellog is born in Wales, living in Canada now. And she really knew her English culture and customs. And I had read all those regencies and lived in England. So I had a good voice for it. Even though I was an English major, there were a lot of sort of grammatical and writing things I didn't know and had to learn on the job. I've been learning about how to write ever since. It never stops. (laughs) Well, you can can tell in your novels, there's a richness of culture that, that absolutely looks like, you know, what you're talking about. So I can, I can see why your voice uh, would appeal to an agent and an editor, but I don't, believe these days that the that the okay i'm going to tell you something and you're going to say here's why you're wrong it seems to me these <laughs> days that the publishing industry is shooting itself in the foot the traditional publishing industry mm-hmm. because amazon's come along to self-publish what anybody you know any idiot with a computer can throw up their grocery list and attempt to sell it the publishing industry the traditional publishing industry's reaction has been to draw its elbows in really really tight and not allow in any new voices at all. What they want is Mary Jo Putney and Mary Jo Putney and Mary Jo Putney. Or Mary Bellock. Or Mary Bellock. Or Mary Bellock, yeah. Or, or Meredith Bond. All well, no. Are- they don't even want me anymore. <laughs> they don't even want you anymore. You spell Mary the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> That's the deal. It's a secret code. M-A-R-Y, Mary, for God's sakes. Um, 
How is the traditional publishing industry going to survive in the face of the Amazon juggernaut and in the face of the fact that they won't allow in new and hopeful? They'll only accept tried and true. There's a, I can actually give you an answer for that based on my experience and what I see. It's not entirely satisfying. <laughs> Bear in mind that used, it used to be that publishers were freestanding, you know, that places like uh, Berkeley, uh, you know, Berkeley and um, Random House, all these were freestanding, freestanding publishers. And over the years, there's been so much consolidation and being bought up by huge conglomerates of which publishing is only a small aspect. Now, people in publishing take it very, very seriously, but whoever is at the top of that mammoth international publisher based in a country far, far away is not going to have a huge amount of energy on it because it's never been a really profitable business, not hugely profitable. So the people who are still in the business survive by choosing known quantities and bestsellers. It's, they don't, it's not entirely true that they don't let in newcomers, but you'll probably have noticed that a number of the romance publishers now have e-original lines. that, they, that um, People who are new authors can sell into the e-original one. And if you do really, really well, like Lucy Parker, you end up at another publisher with a probably a big advance and a lot of support and um, a much better cover. <laughs> so there are a few people who do there, but it kind of comes up through the, from the bottom. It's people saying, hey, did you see this new book by this author you've never heard of? It's so good. You want to buy it. You have to buy it. And eventually that turns into numbers that make the big publishers say, we can take a risk on her because obviously people like her work. You know, the editors and agents are all doing their best, but it's a rough business for everybody at all levels. Clearly. Does that your question? It answers and, my question, but it doesn't, it doesn't explain how, well, you're right. It's this, I think traditional publishing is going to die because I think that's an unsustainable model. The other thing that I've seen them do is, um, is to find publisher authors who are successful at indie publishing and then ask them to write for them. A new right, that is, I should series. have mentioned that. That's part of the same thing, not just bringing people in through original lines, but independent authors. Um, Cindy Hong at Berkeley was a genius at finding paranormal self-published writers, paranormal romance. And she has turned a lot of those people into megastars because she had an eye for it. She's very young. She was the same demographic. She said, this person's going to go places. And she has had many authors prove her right. And there are young, probably editorial assistants who are looking through the indie stuff saying, where, where can I make my name and help some author? But it's not a, it's a completely different process than it used to be. So no longer are we just blindly submitting to agents and then praying that the agent who takes us on can get our books sold. Mm -hmm. well, this is related to the fact that the grand days of, of romance conferences are probably pretty much over. COVID drove the last nail in the coffin. But the fact mm -hmm. is that in the good old days, people went to RWA and Romantic Times because that they were the gatekeepers. That's where you could meet the editors. That's where you could meet the agents. I don't know how many times at an RWA conference I'd walk past a room where there were a bunch of extremely nervous women biting their nails, waiting to talk to an editor for 10 minutes. And the editors are usually pretty nice. They tell you, just relax, just relax. And some of them always will say, send it in to me. The author comes, the hopeful author comes out floating on air. You don't tell her that that agent tells everybody that. <laughs> <laughs> Give somebody their moment. 
And you know, I have long since given up trying to predict who's going to be successful. Over the years, a number of people have called me and say, what do you do? How do you get published? Can you give me some advice? And if I have a few minutes, I'll always give it to them. And I cannot possibly predict who's going to be successful and who isn't. That's a, I'm not God. <laughs> so people, you know, some of them have gone on to very good careers without any particular help from me. <laughs> but I was honest. Do you do your own marketing, Mary Jo? Who does no. I have a young, a younger woman than I am who is an author herself, has actually written more books than I have, and she wanted to be to do some um, assistant work. And she'd had a couple of other authors she'd worked for who were difficult or annoying. She found me easy to work for. If she has, <laughs> if she has a sick kid, I said, take care of the kid. That's always more important, that kind of thing. So we, we've been doing this for two or three years, and she's great to work with. She has much better marketing instincts than I do, and she's helped my sales. I also have a production assistant who is also a published author and a friend of many, many years. And she's much more organized and much better at getting things up there. If, if either of them ever leave me, I'm doomed in my indie work. <laughs> so even you, at your level of uh, reputation, even you are doing your own marketing. I'm, I'm, I've, got, I've got a recent book of yours. I've got Once Dishonored. Mm-hmm. And it's got Kensington imprint on it. Kensington's not marketing you. You're marketing you. No, oh, no actually, I thought you, meant, you were talking about the end. Yes, Kensington actually does a better job of marketing their authors than a lot of publishers do. They were very quick to understand the implication of ebooks, And they've always given me a lot of support and other authors as well. I actually look on the publishing of my front list with Kensington as a way of, mar- of marketing my backlist books. Keeps my name out there. So I'm luckier than most. So you do, you do indie as well as traditional. You take oh, well, your back- getting to, back to that backlist. I have the rights back to more of half the things, more than half the things I've ever written. Uh-huh. And as soon as I could, I started putting out way back in the days when nobody really knew how to put a book up. And there were these rumors that this guy in Canada had a program that could format a book, but it would only work if you had a Mac, blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> I was, I'm lazy, but I'm also curious. I like to take a poke at things and see how they work. My first indie publishing was with um, Regency House, where a most wonderful former Regency writer, um, Neff Rotter, liked to to take older Regencies that had reverted, and uh, she would scan them for you so they'd be an ebook form. All you had to do was proof it, and she'd put it up there with a some kind of period picture. And it was a first test of the waters. She, she was so great to work with. She's recent, she passed away a couple of years ago in a great loss. But um, because the books had were all previously published regencies, but you could count on the fact that they were substantially accurate, there wasn't much work for you. And at the beginning, you know, it made some nice money. So I kept poking it with a stick to see what would happen next. My next indie publishing was my contemporaries, because I knew that neither my agent nor my editor would have much energy on that. I had a contemporary trilogy. So I put that up. You know, step by step, every, you know, I've got almost everything up there now. As a matter of fact, yesterday was the initial publication of the third of my young adult historical time travel fantasy series, wow. the Dark Mirror series. Wow. I had to fight to get the rights back, though, even though the books never sold very well. So you made your name. I mean, you're, you're reputa- you glow in the Regency world, but you have written far beyond that genre. Well, I've always been wanting to try new things. And one thing I have found is that once you get known for a particular thing, even people who love your work won't necessarily follow you to another genre. And, you know, you write something because you love it. And hopefully it will find some audience, if not the audience you're used to. But the fact is that my traditional 
Regency historicals are, have been my mainstay all through my career, starting with traditional Regencies and then getting into the longer books. Now, I've got cats to feed. I have five rescue cats. They need kibble and canned food. <laughs> we have to be practical here. If I, I can always... I won't write a story if I don't love it, but there's within the Regency, there are just incredible ranges of things. It's not all ball gowns and all mags. And anybody who's read my books will not find a lot of those things. But the period is so interesting. Mary can confirm that. Yeah. That's we actually we actually did a podcast very recently on uh, why Mary writes Regency and what it is in the Regency period that that lights her up. And I was unaware of most of them. So I, I think you're right. It's very interesting. Okay, I will say to Mary's comments, Stet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Am I interrupting so, you, Mary? You have a question? No, go right ahead. Keep, well, keep then, going. Okay, okay. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to hog up Mary Jo. Um, given your experience and and your you you will you will laugh, but I will say your wisdom in in publishing. What do you say? to writers at my level, or maybe even someone who has not yet published a book, who's been sending off um, query letters to agents and, and hearing crickets, hearing nothing. If you have the passion for writing, write. The fact is that these days there are alternatives. Nobody will stop you from writing, and these days nobody will stop you from publishing. The hard part about building a career is discoverability. I think that the people who do best in indie uh, publishing, indie romance publishing, certainly write contemporaries and they write fast and they probably write sexy as well. None of those things are particularly what I do. So, you know, I do a book a year and I'm tired of that. But <laughs> really, the pandemic was like finishing my book was like crawling through broken glass. I went in four months late. I haven't had an all-nighter since I was in college, and I don't intend to do any more. But it's, it's hard. Writing is always hard. It does not get easier. If you keep challenging yourself to do things that are new and exciting, it never gets easier. But if you have the passion to write, find the time, put the books out there, do what you can within your comfort zone to make them discoverable, and keep writing until you don't want to anymore. Is there, is there a trick to finding the right agent who will recognize you? I, I mean... How do you how do you, just talk to people? How do you find someone? Well, remember these days there are fewer agents because the business has gotten so difficult. A lot of them have gone and become dog walkers or something. Right. I'm lucky right. that when I lost my first agent, it was I mean when when she retired, um, I was fortunately able to find a agent who represented my one of my friends. So I knew she was good, and I got really lucky because the agent's daughter was a big fan of mine. She got mommy points by taking me on, and she's my agent to this day. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I've been very lucky in this business. I know people who are much more organized, who've done much more, much more research on agents and took somebody on, and it turned out to be a disaster. Okay. Oh, I will say, follow your instincts. Is a person, is if it's important for you that they respond quickly, um, see how fast they are in getting back to you. If they publish in the, or they sell books in the area you want. If you feel comfortable with them, if you're afraid to call them for some reason or another, they may not be a good fit. And remember, you do not need an agent to indie publish. Thank God. I'm living yeah. proof of that. But I think that you are seeing this. I, I think that there are many of my friends at the um, Washington, D.C. chapter of Romance Writers, Washington Romance Writers, as you know, um, they are desperate to get any agent interested in what they have to say. And it was, it's not a question of, you know, this is, this is my equivalent as 
You go shopping, the jeans actually do button and zip up. But just because they fit doesn't mean that's a good pair of jeans for you, right? Just because an agent bites doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be a good relationship. But you get so desperate to have a pair of jeans that you'll buy anything that fits you. It's a good metaphor. And people find out if it's going to work or it doesn't work. If you send something in and she, she takes you on and sends something in and doesn't get back to you for six months or a year, you're going to be even more frustrated. You have right. to show good brudge, good judgment. I understand the desperation. I was lucky I sold before I had a chance to get panicky. Um, <laughs> I, I figured that at most I could have written two books before I decided, okay, enough time invested. Because I would have just decided I was never going to be able to do it. But I got lucky. So there is an element of luck. Absolutely. Well, oh, I yeah. you know, actually surprisingly find that reassuring. Because it doesn't necessarily mean if, if no agent is biting, it doesn't mean you're a bad writer. Exactly. Actually, one of the great things that indie publishing is for is for writers who do kind of niche books, things that will never be huge bestseller. But there are some people who have been desperately looking for exactly the kind of book you're writing. And if you can reach those people, maybe you write ornithological romances, you know, women looking at birds and tripping over handsome men in the park. If so, you can, you can, add, you can promote your book among the ornithology community. A great idea. Oh my God. An ornithological romance. I'm very happy with that concept. Well, you know, I, I come up with good ideas. Sometimes, though, I don't. <laughs> Another bestseller for Mary Jo Putney. At least among the birding crew. You know how many older people are bird watchers? Many. All of them. All so of in them. fact, if you do a romance with older people who you know, you know widow, widower who are meeting bird watching, you could do a pretty good meet cute on that one. I think that's I, I spotted that purple plover first. No, no, I did. And then you have an enemy to friends romance. Go for it. <laughs> Perfect. The good ideas are just flowing. Any reader can take that one. Good luck. Good luck getting to the publishing line first. <laughs> In the long run, what works better, even better than luck, is telling a good story. And I think particularly with indie publishing, the desire is to write fast, write short, get something up. And that, can, that works for a lot of authors. But if you aren't putting your heart and soul in your book, and there isn't something authentic that resonates with readers, ultimately, they're just forgettable stories. I want, I, I'll put you on the spot. And I'm sorry to do it. Oh, go because ahead. Thank you. Okay. Okay, wiggle out of this one, Mary Jo. Um, I think that there are great books that are written by people who don't have the money to promote them. Mm -hmm. So the premise that it's a full-on meritocracy, that your wonderful work will rise to the top like cream, I think is a very depressing notion for people who can't afford Facebook ads or promotion companies or um, very fancy covers I think that it's not a meritocracy. I think that people will do better if they have the money to promote themselves, regardless of their quality. What do you say? Well, that's always been true, but it's not the only route. Somebody who is a good writer, there's an awful lot of groups around of other um, indie authors who help each other out. There are some very famously successful indie authors who give classes on what they can do. There's a lot of things that don't require a lot of money. I do think a good cover is important. The, the Ever since I started self-publishing, I've been using Kim Killian. Who so am I. Oh, yes. Well, she's a terrific uh, um, 
designer. In fact, because I have a design background, I first found her when a good friend of mine who was in the same chapter said when I was muttering about how do I find a cover designer, this was really early, like 2011, said, well, as a girl, there's a woman in my chapter who's a designer. I think you would like to do some of this work. So I looked her up and I looked at her credentials based on the fact that I was a designer too. I thought she looks pretty good. And I saw some covers that she had done for an author that she knew who decided not to publish them because she was shy, not because she wasn't a great writer. So I contacted Kim. We, we both kind of figured our way out how to do it. And now, like, I gave her the, uh, what I wanted to see for a Christmas novella, like, two days ago. And the next day, she comes back with this great draft, and we're going to fine-tune it a little bit. And uh, she's not that she's far from the most expensive person around, too. I know. She, I was impressed. I and she's... Uh, yeah, it is. Well, she's very fast, and she's done zillions of colors and still hasn't run out of ideas out of, after all these covers. She does all kinds of different things. And I asked her how she bore the burden of everybody's expectations yesterday. And she said, it's not a burden. It's a challenge. Oh, good for her. <laughs> Which is why she's still doing great covers after all these years. I think mine are charming. I love mine. So I'm very happy Absolutely. with her. Mm -hmm. So she, I think she's good at tuning in on people and finding out what they really want and what their book wants. Mm -hmm. She did very well for me. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned something about how you were crawling through glass during the pandemic. Writing is a, a, an isolated event. We do it alone. But there was something about the pandemic which shut off the creativity of a whole bunch of people. Is that what happened to you? Almost every writer I know had trouble writing. There was a New York Times article that came out some months ago during this period. It talked about languishing which isn't full-on depression, but it's sort of an exhaustion, a failure to find joy in things. And I know one author, and she wrote like three books, a couple of novellas during the pandemic. If she wasn't so nice, I'd hate her. But she's the only <laughs> one I know like that. Most of us really had trouble writing. And you have to accept it what it is. It doesn't mean you're a failure. It doesn't mean you've lost the touch. It just meant that it's been a very hard time to write. Mm. Mm. It, it is a... Uh... It's, it's like when you pull a muscle and didn't realize how often you use that muscle or you stub mm -hmm. your toe and didn't realize how mm -hmm. important that toe was. Mm -hmm. I always think of writing as I sit in my office and please leave me alone. But mm -hmm. the fact that all of a sudden everyone was leaving me alone was not a benefit. It did mm -hmm. not help. I did have a hard time writing a rom-com. I mean, it just wasn't a time for comedy. It wasn't a time for comedy. I, I, another person I know who does great comedy hasn't done any writing during the pandemic except essays and, and columns and so forth because she just didn't feel like laughing. We have to accept the circumstances. We are not God. We are mostly introverts, which is why I have to say that during the pandemic, my life did not change that much. But <laughs> just not being able to go out and hug a friend, all that sort of thing, it takes it out of us. We're social animals, even, even the introverts. That's Although I have to say, I did very well during the pandemic because it was my escape. Mm. I could just totally ignore the fact that the world was on fire and, and escape into my little fantasy world and forget everything that was going on. That's I didn't great. look at the news. I didn't Good. want to, to base the real world at all. I just I retreated into my my regencies and I stayed there for, you know, so many months. <laughs> That's great that you were able to do that. I wish I'd been able to do the same. Um, I was marooned on islands north of Scotland, you know, a, a fictional version of Orkney and just crawling around through those Neolithic ruins trying to find a romance. <laughs> the book is once a laird, it'll be out at the end of October. Oddly enough, people who read it seem to think it works. So even though it was very painful to write, at least the storyteller 
part of me did not quit. She hardly ever showed up for work, but she didn't quit. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really interesting. I wonder how it will. I wonder how it will uh, sort of season over time. If if you'll be able to look back at it and say it doesn't have the same. You, I, I think your books are justifiably famous for a, a very um, a deft and light touch. Even when things are very very gripping, it's still smooth and easy it's a, it's a delicious thing to slip into uh, and so you say uh, uh but but i wonder how this one will have been changed does it still have that lightness that you know it, is it still a souffle or have you made a pudding i've never really thought of myself as a souffle writer but i when i did <laughs> the, the belated um you know proofing and and copy editing and all that stuff there were, there were very few things that had to be changed. The, the muse wasn't showing up, but when she did, she kept that story thread. I've always been lucky that I'm a good storyteller, and that's what has kept me going this whole time. It's never been easy, but the stories that come out work. And if I don't know what happens next, nothing happens. And then eventually I'll work it out and more continuous. So the people who've read the book have liked it a lot. One of them, admittedly, is my husband who's biased, but other people have too. So I think it's probably a decent book. It's not my most... Her, I, I haven't tortured the hero as much in this book as some of the others, but it's on the Scottish island. There is a one-eyed cat, gray cat called Odin, based on my Grady the Gray. There is a nice little herding dog called Fiona, and a magnificent Thorsean horse with a lot of Icelandic blood called Thor. So if you've got a few critters around, that always helps. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I always have cats. I love the idea of a one-eyed cat named Odin. That's brilliant. He had a lot of personality. He was very bonded to the old Laird who was ancient and dying. And it, when the Laird died, the cat howled and went into the storm. And then he turned up uh, a little while later in the, in the stables to see the new Laird, young Laird, who's my hero, swats him. And from then on, he's there. He's been knighted. The cat, the cat knights him with a swat. Probably. Cats do all kinds of things we don't understand. But he decided that that the new Laird was acceptable. (laughs) Are you a pantser or a plotter? I've never been entirely comfortable with those two terms, so I don't use them. I I have to know the basic structure of a story before I start writing. And traditionally, I will usually write a I will think about a story and characters for a lot of time. They're kind of in the back of my mind. One of the things that happens when you're writing one book that's really hard, you're thinking about the air book, the one that hasn't been written yet, the one that you know will be easier. <laughs> <laughs> it's so pretty. I want to play with that. Oh, yes. Well, look at all that. Yes, I'd much rather be doing that one than this one. <laughs> but but um, by the time I'm ready to write it, I have to be able to write at least a several-page basic outline. There's much that I don't know about the story, but when I have that framework in place, I can start working on it, and new things will come in. They're, it's not like they're coming out of nowhere. They're derived from the structure and the characters that I already have. But as you go along, you think, oh, that's pretty cool. Let's put that in. I've never really felt that the characters ran away with me. I'd kind of thought them out before the book started. But you, the re- research comes up with great stuff. Things I find things in research I could never have invented. This is one reason why Mary and I write historicals, right? <laughs> Well, I mean, and and it's it's a learning opportunity. And I was I was reading uh, once dishonored, and had never considered what happened with the prisoner exchanges and mm-hmm. if you ran away from a prison. Oh, anyway, anyway, it was very rich and very um, surprising to me. And I've been reading Regencies all my life. It's like, oh, I never even thought that's very cool. So I can see why I can see why that one 
plucked at your at your at your writing strings and said, "Here's the story." Well, once I started, I, and I and I get stuck, I realize I need to do more research so I understand what it is. And I couldn't have. I, I knew it was sort of dishonorable. Uh, to have run away from a parole. And I dug into the details of it, which were very interesting. I figured if it interests me, it's going to interest some readers. And those layers of history um, enrich a book. And they make it uh, more unique. They do. They most definitely do. I find it very enriching. Meredith Bond, I have absolutely dominated this. Do you have, I mean, <laughs> did, any questions, any thoughts? Um, Mary Jo, you mentioned that you are writing one book a year now, and it's it's getting more difficult. Have you ever considered retiring? And if you did, what would the rest of us, what would we do? <laughs> you would write your own wonderful books. I have to admit <laughs> that after, when, when I turned in my four months late, once a layered, I had contracted to do a Christmas story. So after about one day of collapse, I had to write a Christmas novella. That one featured my cat princess fluffer bella real cat a similar backstory to the to the one that i have it was but it was really hard and at the end of that time i have a feeling that my agent editor were talking and the age editor was saying would you take another contract now and the agent said don't talk to me yet <laughs> i really wondered if i wanted to keep going so what i did was pull out the second book i ever wrote called lady of honor lady, lady of, For of fortune almost nobody had ever read it and I sent it to my editor and said, would you like this? It's kind of an edit, you know, I could edit it up, clean it up a bit, and you could put it out next year, since I won't have, I certainly am not writing a new book for next year. Much to my surprise, she liked it. So I spent several lazy months going through and taking out some of the Georgette Harrisms and some of the extra words, there were many extra words, but not really changing the story. And I sent it in just before we went cruising on the Ohio River in September. And I have cautiously agreed to write two new books after that with the, with the understanding that if it just seems like too much, I can just give them the money back. I don't know. I hope I hope so. I mean, I hope the stories will still be there. I still have, I have some ideas. They're starting to grow and, and you know, you know like, like a Petri dish with something growing yep. in it. So we'll see what happens. They're percolating. Mm -hmm. yeah, my, yeah, I like to think of stories percolating. I'm not ready. That's not, that's not brewed yet. Mm -hmm. But I must say, I think whipping out an ornithological romance you know, off the tips of your fingers proves that I don't think you're done yet. I think there's probably <laughs> ideas are there, but there's so much work. And, it, and it's actually the easiest writing I've ever done is the first 119 pages on which I sold my first book. As soon as I was offered money on it, it started getting harder. And even one of, my, one of my very earliest historicals, I remember thinking it was dragging. It was so slow. It was the one medieval I ever wrote. And I just, you know, it just seemed like it was never going to end. It was going to look really dreary when I read, when I read it later. And no, it actually seemed to come along quite crisply. That pattern has never changed. I think we all have kind of a pre-wired creativity pattern in our brains, and we really can't kick out of it very much. Not Boy, for lack of trying. Not for lack of trying. Well, it it looks to me like you have you've honed your inner critic to be very successful for you. I mean, whatever it is you're doing. I won't hand it in unless I'm satisfied with it. Usually the last chapter or two needs to be redone. But if I'm not, if, if the book isn't working yet, I'm not going to give it to them. When you say to my reputation, do you mean you need to redo it or an editor comes back to you and says, not enough, do more? No, it's always a matter of writing the last chapter or two in an insane rush because my editor is sending me little notes. Production is dragons are circling <laughs> and I pull it up together. So they know how it'll end. And then, Within a week or so, I sent her a couple new chapters, and at some and I also have you know the copy edit and st uh, staged in which to improve it. But it's just that at the end, I just want the damn thing out the door. 
Well, right. Like giving birth. We are all that way. (laughs) I do know I will have a chance to sharpen it up with Nina. I wonder what would happen if you decided to publish a new work in the, on your own schedule without someone leaning on you. Would it be better or worse? It wouldn't get written. I have found that without a deadline, I cannot produce. Deadlines produce panic and creativity. It's not fun, but it works. I I have friends who actually, I have one very good friend who's written a lot more books than I have, who always gets things done early, even when she was traditionally published. She's full indie now. And she just didn't like pressure. She didn't like deadlines. She got things done early, and then she had to wait months while the editor had a chance to look at it. (laughs) This works for her. Right. Sometimes I have trouble believing we're good friends, but hey. I was a fundraising copywriter for 20 years, 25 years, and I was perpetually late. All Mm -hmm. my clients knew to lie to me about the deadline. Mm -hmm. And my line was, it takes pressure to make a diamond. It's true. That's a very good line. I wish I thought of that. I'll steal it. Thank you. (laughs) God knows I've stolen things from you in the past, but feel free. We we transmute things. We say something we like, and then we put our own spin on it. It's our own creativity and our own voice that matters. There you go. I love it. Mary Jo, thank you so much. So, Prue, you can write that ornithological (laughs) book, and Mary Jo can write it, and you'll end up with two different things. And you'll have little magical dragons flying around being identified in the trees, right, Mary If all three of us us said right now we'll write an ornithological romance and publish them next year, wouldn't it be interesting to see what happened? (laughs) Do you have any idea how many marriage of convenience books have been written in, mostly in historical, but a number in contemporary as well? It's true. All different. It's awesome. It's (laughs) awesome. Well, this has been great fun. We're all members of Washington Romance Writers. I've known Mary for many, many years. You for not so many years. But this has been fun. Thank you so much, Mary Jo. It's so fun talking to you and gaining your perspective on things that still confuse me. So thank you. Do you have any one last question that you feel like I might be able to answer? This is your chance. What is your favorite Georgette hair? (laughs) Probably Venetia. And this is something that Regency authors ask each other when they get together at, in clumps at conferences. What was your first Georgette hair? Which is your favorite? And then it, it, it all goes from there. How about yes. you, Mary? Yes, Mary, you have one too, right? I do, of course. My favorite is the Tollgate. That's a, that's a good one. I like the Unknown Ajax. I like, that's a good um, one too. Um, Friday's well, Child. Not so much. <laughs> There's a, there's one or two I would I would never reread, but there's most of them I've read and reread. False Colors, the twin book. I love twin oh. books. Oh, I love that book. That was <laughs> one of my favorites. Absolutely. Prue, shut us up. You see what happens when Regency <laughs> writers get to talking. Honey, I'm right there. Mine is the Grand Sophie. I'm right in there with you. That was such a, that's one of my favorites too. And the very first one I ever read was Sylvester. It's still a favorite. Sylvester is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I've read Sylvester, but I don't remember it. Shh, don't tell anyone. Cut that part out. I think you would like that one because it's a farce. All right. A farce with gothic overtones. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) She's still teaching us today, that lady. Uh, Meredith, next week we're talking about show and tell, when you should show and when you should tell. Is that right? That is right. We are moving back into a little bit of writing craft because we Mm -hmm. need to touch on that every now and then. Now and then. Thank you again, Mary Jo. You are, a, you remain a star in the firmament. <laughs> Thank you. I've had fun with it. 
They this is the fun part of writing, not the actual writing. <laughs> Just talking about it. <laughs> well, I have a suggestion for a future guest for you, possibly. My friend Anne Gracie, who's another word wench, she's in Australia. It'd be better maybe for the time zones. And she's a okay. former teacher, and she uh, she's very fluent. And she, if she can do it from her home with her dog in her lap, she'll probably be willing. That's that would be fantastic. I've written down her name, and I'm sure Prue has too. Read her. She's great. And Gracie yep. there. Yeah, she uh, has a real grasp of character. Uh, and she knows the Regency very, very well. But it's, it's the way she does her characters that just really resonate with me. And she always finds new twists. Excellent. We will have to speak with her about characters. An Australian interpretation of the Regency period. Very interesting. Well, she's oh. like most Australians, has traveled the world, has lived in the UK. And I, I think she was an English teacher. I know she was a teacher. And she's just a really good writer. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. We're running. We're running out of time. Thank you. Thank you. You've been Thank wonderful. you for inviting me. It's been fun. Take care. All right. Thanks Talk so much. Next week, Mary. All right. Bye. That's it for the writers' block party this week. We don't want you getting so drunk on knowledge that you can't drive your laptop safely. But next week we'll be here before you know it, so check out the website at thewritersblockpartypodcast.com. One word. That's where you can find our archive of past podcasts and a place where you can get in touch with Mary and Prue or ask questions for the next podcast. Write with joy, friends, and see you next week. Thank you.